and thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 202, The Battle of Shanghai, part two. Last time, the battle over Shanghai, to Chiang Kai-shek's thinking, the beginning of Chinese freedom from Japan, had begun in August of 1937. And Chiang's best soldiers of the 87th and 88th Divisions had managed to contain the Japanese invaders within the city center. But having been stymied, General Iwane Matsui, commander of the Shanghai Expeditionary Force, decided to broaden his attack by landing three other divisions to the northwest of the current fighting. Like the conflict against Japanese aggression in general, this battle was also widening. What the two sides had stumbled into, had caused, would evolve into the largest battle to take place in an urban setting to date. The pictures and films to be captured in Stalingrad five years later, with that city's destruction, would look little different than what was about to transpire in Shanghai, China's largest and most cosmopolitan city. And if the people of Asia needed an example of what was to come, they were surely given it earlier, in July of that same year. After the Japanese cabinet decided to beef up its forces in Manchukuo, Korea, and Beijing, those soldiers sent to that last city were told their primary job was to teach China a lesson. So, in and around the Beijing-Tianjin area, Japanese units launched several surprise attacks, as we have seen. One unit of Chinese soldiers, holed up in their barracks, were almost wiped out to a man. The few survivors then left, but were later caught up between several Japanese machine gun emplacements. The remainder were brought down. However, amazingly, a few were still alive, but they were left to die under the hot sun the next day. To the east of Beijing, the ancient town of Tongzhou was run by the Japanese East Hubei Autonomous Government. True, it had Chinese administrators, but their masters were of the Japanese Empire. Besides housing several Japanese units, there were some 400 Japanese and Korean civilians there. The Koreans had been given the status of Japanese nationals. As the battle within Beijing and Tianjin ramped up, the Japanese troops there were ordered to pull out and help with the subjugation of the nearby Chinese fighters. This had been the moment the local Chinese auxiliary police force had been waiting for. With the Japanese soldiers gone, the police pulled out their swords and poured into the streets on the early morning of July 29th. In short, the older foreign victims were killed outright, most being hacked to death, while the younger ones were first raped and then dismembered. The pent-up humiliation of the Chinese had long since been waiting to be released. But before too long, the Japanese troops came back and recaptured Tongzhou. They found that of the 385 Japanese and Koreans there, some 223 were now dead. Now it was their turn. The beheadings and all the other crimes visited on the Japanese and Koreans now found their marks among the Chinese, whether guilty of any crime or not. If a local was found, they were killed. But knowing that the local police force had fled after their crimes, the Japanese then went outside the town 
into the countryside and repeated their vengeful ways. After the soldiers had spent themselves and their anger, they returned to Tongzhou to set it ablaze. Thus, both sides showed what they were capable of and why. The Japanese believing the more cruel they were, the sooner the Chinese would come to heal. And as for the Chinese, it was simply the years of being under a foreigner's thumb. Getting back to Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek knew what he was getting into, but wished he knew more. His chief spy, Dai Li, had, up until recently, spent his time and considerable talents focused on the communists. Now he was working his way into Shanghai during July, but had little to show for it. He had gathered a few contacts in Little Tokyo, as the Hongkou area of Shanghai was called, which was occupied mostly with Japanese businessmen. They had little to offer besides hearsay, that something extreme was coming, that soon those very Japanese businessmen would be busy, as they would be the dominant economic force in the city. As if this lack of intel was not bad enough, Chang also obsessed over his own limitations. Of China's overall 176 divisions, they were, at least on paper, divided into two brigades of two regiments each. Yet only about 20 of those divisions were at full strength, of 10,000 men each. The rest only had about half that number. But of more concern to the nationalist leader was that only some 31 divisions were under his control. The others, their loyalty ebbed and flowed. And even of those, none of them, as we have seen, had any serious training in coordinating between infantry, armor, and artillery. As for the Chinese-made artillery, not only did it have a shorter range than the enemy guns, but as their steel was of less quality, the guns had a tendency to overheat and explode. Equally dismal, but for different reasons, was China's air force, if that term could be used. Yet as things stood, their air arm was still the pride of the Chinese military. The nationalist government had set up the Central Aviation School outside Hangzhou, itself a little more than 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, west of Shanghai. Taking from the Americans, the school kept its trainee pilots up in the air as much as possible. Yet the extent of China's training came from the Italians, who were at the time envied for their air force. And yet the Italians brought over some of their bad habits. One major flaw was to count a plane as operational, even if it existed as a pile of parts, unable to get off the ground. So, on paper, China had just over 600 aircraft. The real number of operational military aircraft was closer to 91. When the senior air commander told Chiang Kai-shek this in mid-1937, the Generalissimo threatened to have the man shot. The Italians had set up their own flight school in central China, but as United States Army Air Force Captain Claire Lee Chenault declared, during the summer of 1937, who was assessing Chinese ability to wage air warfare, after his retirement earlier that year, that the Italians were giving out pilot wings to anyone who managed to finish their course alive. But even then, Chenault would watch as some of those now pilots crashed 
attempting just basic maneuvers. The Americans' final assessment was, though the Chinese pilots at their training facility were markedly better, the Chinese Air Force is not ready for war. Still, as we have seen, Cheng ordered the airstrike on the Japanese cruiser Izumo on August 14th, but it had not been his idea. And to be sure, there were other air attacks by the Chinese that day, but they had been no more successful. Hence, the day would be remembered as Black Saturday for all of the Chinese civilian deaths. No, the idea came from Chenault himself. The night before, the American aviator had been at the Nanjing Military Academy with Cheng and his wife, China's First Lady. She had been near tears when she lamented, They are killing our people. So Chenault had suggested that Chang's Air Force strike at the Japanese ships and harbor. After all, it was their guns that menaced the city and supported the enemy infantry. Chenault would find himself, like so many others, captivated by the lady before him, and through her he felt a connection to the Chinese people, which, truth be told, could have easily been the goal of the first family of China. All is fair in love and war. Besides, being a fighter, the American was eager to try out his theories in a real setting. Taking off in an unarmed fighter early that morning of Black Saturday, Chenault wanted to witness the attacks firsthand. Having avoided several rain clouds, he finally made it to the harbor, and below spotted a ship, its guns blazing. Obviously, it had just been attacked, but sadly seemed none the worse for wear. Only then did the American realize it was the British cruiser Cumberland. Chenault didn't know who to curse at more, the Chinese pilots or their Italian trainers. When Chenault landed, only then was he told of the other tragic mistakes made by the Chinese pilots. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Much later, Chenault would offer up his reasons for the egregious mistakes. The Chinese crews had, in training, practiced bombing from 7,500 feet, 
but as that Saturday had been cloudy, the pilots dropped to 1,500 feet. However, they had not adjusted their bomb sights, nor factored in their current speeds. A Chinese newspaper told the story of one Chinese pilot who had tried to bomb a race course, but also missed his target, putting his explosives down much closer to the spectators. Another pilot said that before his attack could begin, he had been set upon by a Japanese fighter, who not only killed his observer, but damaged his bomb racks, thus releasing his bombs when not intending to. Either way, the damage and carnage was done. But Chenault wasn't the only American in the city that Black Saturday. Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady of the United States, was in the city and witnessed the destruction firsthand. She would write to Japan's premier, Prince Kanoye, and begged him to find a way to minimize civilian casualties. Only later would she learn the truth. Tokyo did not respond to her missive. However, the Izumo was moved further out, but still close enough to cover the Japanese infantry. As we saw last time, as Japan still considered this building episode an incident, its cabinet sent reinforcements, three more divisions to Shanghai to help the pressured Marines there. Two of these three would make up the 3rd and 11th Divisions, and they were reservists, having fought in Shanghai back in 1932. But now these men were in their late 20s and early 30s and had not kept up with their exercise or military training. Not that it mattered, for they and their superiors could not think of the Chinese soldiers as challenging. Their only advantage was in their numbers. Leading this surge of new troops would be the 59-year-old General Matsui Iwane, a veteran of the Russo-Japanese War. Called out of retirement, this diminutive man was not physically intimidating, but he knew China well, had met Chiang Kai-shek several times, and had known Sun Yat-sen. His hobby, his interest since then, had been the unification of Asia, and now he would have a rather direct chance of making that a reality, through force. Upon his promotion, Matsui told Army Minister Suguyama Hajime, that because of Chang's instigation, he would be forced to take Shanghai, but that the war would never really be over until Nanjing was also under Japan's control. Those were now his goals, and Tokyo remained silent. When the 87th and 88th Divisions attacked the Japanese forces, with the goal of driving them back into the Huangpu River, Little Tokyo, to the east of the city center, just above the Hangzhou Bay, also came under attack. Early on, it was surrounded on its three landward sides. Right away, the Japanese and Korean businessmen tried to get their wives and children to safety by having them board ferries to take them home. To be sure, those leaving had to walk over many Chinese bodies. Unfortunates who had been working in Little Tokyo when Chang's divisions attacked. Some were killed by Japanese Marines, now acting as infantry, the rest by Japanese gangs that followed the army around. 
when the Chinese attacked Vice Admiral Hasegawa Kiyoshi, commander of the Japanese Third Fleet, had dispatched his Marines as best he could. But when the Chinese infantry came, those lines were almost broken. Hence the need to deploy what tanks Rear Admiral Akiwachi Denshichi, who led the Marines, had. As we have seen, Zheng Jiazhong had called off his assault on August 18th, after losing many men, but having little to show for it, during Operation Iron Fist. But on the other side, Vice Admiral Hasegawa had spent August 16th showering his superiors with pleas for help, saying he doubted his men could resist another six days, the expected date for massive reinforcements from up north. In between these dates, on August 17th, the foreigners had seen enough. Some 1,300 British and American women and children left Shanghai. The British aboard the Rajputana bound for Hong Kong, the Americans aboard President Jefferson for Manila. Two days later, another 1,400 British nationals evacuated. The international settlement, along with the French concession, were becoming ghost towns in regards to foreigners. With this being the case, many locals came to the settlement, seeking food, if not safety. As the first Japanese reinforcements, Marines from Manchuria, arrived on the morning of August 18th, they were thrown right into the conflict. During that same morning, the Japanese cabinet proclaimed an end to the policy of non-expansion in China. Quote, the empire, having reached the limit of its patience, has been forced to take resolute measures. Henceforth, it will punish the outrages of the Chinese army and thus spur the Chinese government to self-reflect. And, as we have seen, when the British, French, and American ambassadors in Nanjing, in trying to resolve the conflict, recommended making Shanghai a neutral zone, where both sides would withdraw all forces, there were no takers from Chang's government. The Japanese government felt the same way. When the Japanese reinforcements began to arrive in earnest on August 22nd, their supporting naval aircraft wanted to make sure the enemy wasn't capable of the same thing, so began to bomb the railway line from Suzhou. And though some bridges were damaged, the Chinese reinforcements were only slightly delayed. Meanwhile, the Japanese were only hours away from attempting the largest amphibious operation to date, as other divisions were en route. During the night of August 21st, the first of the reinforcements arrived at the Yangtze River. It was then the soldiers transferred to smaller vessels to make their way up the Hangpu River to their drop-off points. As this transfer took place within sight of the Chinese coast, the defenders were still unaware of the large enemy force about to hit them. Nor did the Chinese air commanders send out reconnaissance past their harbor, even though, if there were to be enemy reinforcements, they must surely come from that direction. As the Chinese troops from the home island and Manchukuo began to land to the northwest of Shanghai Center, they were adhering to strict Japanese tactics. These the Japanese got from the German strategist Alfred von Schlieffen, who got his idea of encirclement from the Carthaginian general Hannibal. 
Only by surrounding and then moving inward with superior firepower could the limited Japanese troops hope to defeat the seemingly limitless Chinese defenders. The Japanese reinforcements were scheduled to come ashore at 3 a.m. on August 23rd. As such, the Japanese naval forces had been shelling the respective nearby enemy positions since midnight. The sounds of the large guns blazing away must have given heart to those troops, who had, up until a few weeks ago, been in civilian clothes, enjoying a relatively easy life. Meanwhile, those same sounds had to be disheartening to the Chinese defenders who were hunkered down, awaiting to be attacked. During the last hour of waiting, Matsue Iwane, who was in charge of the troops about to land, met with Rear Admiral Nagumo Chuichi, commander of the 8th Cruiser Squadron. They talked as the 3rd Division prepared to land at Wusong, right across from Changxing Island, and the 11th Division would land at Chuan Shaku, further inland to the northwest, by some 6 miles, or 9.6 kilometers. Both men agreed that sending some of the fleet south, just south of the city, had been a wise move, as it would help spread out the defenders' lines. As the 3 a.m. hour neared on August 23rd, the 3rd Division readied itself to board even lighter vessels to go ashore. But as this would put them closer to a larger body of Chinese defenders than the 11th Division, the Navy had agreed to give up 500 Marines, who would land first. So the naval bombardment increased. Bright lights were turned on to blind the Chinese on shore, and the Marines quietly boarded steamers that immediately began to head landward. The Chinese suspected something, so a few machine guns started firing off, then a few more. But each time one opened up, giving away its position, the larger guns of the Japanese responded. Soon the machine guns stopped, either because their crews were dead or were too afraid to expose themselves. At exactly 3 a.m., the first landing craft touched soil. They had been trained by the punctual Germans, after all. The Marines waded ashore and then proceeded to climb the dike before them. When they reached the top, a machine gun opened up and cut a few of them down. For those Japanese that did not fall right away, they scanned the area and found the enemy formation not 50 yards away. Orders were given, bayonets were fixed, and the 500-man unit, minus those who had just died or been wounded, charged the machine guns. Again, the automatic guns opened up, taking more attackers down. Then the Marines heard an explosion as one of their brethren stepped on a mine. Then another went off. There was nothing for it now. To stop was to die. To go back was to die. Only by going forward was there a chance to live, to get past the mines and silence those guns. Within seconds, the machine gun placements were overrun. A few seconds later, the nearby Chinese were all dead. As assessed by the Japanese in the last 48 hours, the Chinese at this location were paramilitary troops only, with little training. But the machine guns and mines had been deadly enough. But now that the guns were taken, this allowed the Marines to continue on further inland, 
Between their mad dashes and screams, the other Chinese soldiers melted before them. Before too long, the Marines had captured a section of the road that ran parallel with the Huangpu River. Their objective had been reached. Now the 3rd Division came ashore, but their arrival was far less hazardous. The men spread out, widening their holdings. By 8 a.m., the divisional command joined them on shore. Matsui then heard from the 11th Division, and that report was equally uplifting. To the northwest of the 3rd Division, the 11th was a little late getting aboard the landing craft, so did not reach shore until 3.50 a.m. To make up for this, the men of the 11th pushed hard, but found that Chan Shako was only defended by a single Chinese company. Within minutes, the Japanese held the area, and by 7 a.m., the first of the division was ashore. The two divisions, along with the 500 Marines, had only lost 40 or so men. The Chinese commander, Zhang Jiazhang, did not receive a report until 5.30 a.m. He was currently in the village of Nanjiang, about 10 miles or 16 kilometers southwest of where the 3rd had landed. The only thing the commander of the 56th Infantry Division could tell him was that a force of unknown size had landed at Changshako, and with that, as all other phone lines had been cut, probably due to Japanese bombs or shells, there was no other information to offer. Clearly, Jang told himself there was nothing he could do here, so he decided to make for a location north of Shanghai. It might put him closer to the fighting, but at least he would have a better idea of what was happening. As he set out in his car early that morning, Japanese fighters dove down at him repeatedly. So he got out and commandeered a bicycle from a private. Not arriving until 9 a.m., Zhang was told of the second landing at Wusong. Clearly, he had to take action, or the fight over Shanghai would be over before it could begin. To deal with the enemy at Wusong, half of the 87th Division and a regiment from the training brigade, an elite group, would be sent there. As for Chuang Shako, clearly the 56th Division couldn't cope, so the 98th Infantry Division was ordered forward. And finding out that the 11th Division had just arrived, that was placed in between the two enemy locations, but a little further to the west, at Liaodian. That way, it could react to either threat. So now the 11th Japanese Division had an enemy formation close to it, and one a little further away, acting as a reserve. It was the only advantage Zhang had, his people. So he used them. Of course, if these men couldn't hold on, then the battle for Shanghai would morph into a much larger battle, one that would take place out in the open areas, which only benefited the enemy. As the 11th Chinese moved out for Liaodian, they would find that the enemy was already there. The 11th Japanese Infantry Division, having already secured Changshako, sent out a small unit on ahead and they reached and occupied the small town, meeting no resistance. But then, before other Japanese forces could arrive, the bulk of the Chinese 11th arrived that afternoon. Though the day was hot, and these men had been bombed and strafed on their journey, they decided to attack right away. 
Fortunately for the attacking Chinese, the Japanese troops had been too tired or had not had enough time to set up a proper defense. The invaders were quickly overrun. Within an hour, the fighting was over. Those Japanese soldiers that survived retreated closer to the shore. When they told their superiors of what had happened, a large counterattack was organized. The town of Liaodian may have only been one of many small towns around the much larger city of Shanghai. However, it dominated the roads that ran south and west. And some of those roads led to rail lines that connected it to Nanjing, the nationalist capital city. The Japanese were already en route, coming in three columns, each one supported by tanks. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, because of the increase in membership, thank you very much, I am so much closer to doing this full-time. So, if again, if you've considered membership, please sign up. You can find that on the website, and then I'll send you the uh, password and log information. Uh, another thing that you could do to help me is I'm trying to get more ads from Libsyn. So, if you could take a moment and go to a certain link and, and take a survey for me. It's uh, http colon slash slash survey.libson.com slash WWII podcast. And I'll put the link in the show notes. If you if some of you could do that, I would really appreciate it. And that'll help get this whole thing going. I'm looking at uh, the end of this year uh, to when I'll quit my job and do this full time. Also, it's time for another Harry's giveaway. So when you get a chance, um, go to my email address, wwiipodcast at gmail.com. Let me know that you want to enter for the Harry's drawing. And just for the fun of it, it's an inside joke. In the subject area, if you could put Big Daddy. Yes, I'm saying that with a straight face. So uh, please enter to to do another drawing. Uh, good luck to everybody. Um, and we'll do that probably early or mid-October. But uh, get those in so I can get it all organized. Thanks, everyone, for listening and for joining the membership and just helping out in, uh, in all the different ways you do. And, of course, thank you for listening. Take care, everyone.